All right, greetings to all of our campuses. Uh, we are so glad you're here. This is, a, this is a, a, such a fun time of year as we are gearing up for our annual ShareFest event next weekend, um, Labor Day weekend. We as a church, um, we were a church that believes in the power of, of love and serving. Uh, we want to love people well. We want to bless our community well. And so next weekend, we're going to do that in a very cool and tangible way. Instead of having our typical worship services next weekend, we're going to worship by serving our our community together. There will be teams blessing our schools, helping um, spruce things up. There will be teams working on uh, homes of people in need, doing painting and cleanup and things like that. There will be a team doing a single mom oil change here in the parking lot at 15th Street. Hundreds of people from Christ Community serving others. So next weekend, we don't want to just do church. We want to be the church. And so here's how this is going to work. We will not be having Saturday night services next week, nor will we be meeting at our West Campus on Sunday morning. Instead, all of us are going to meet Sunday morning, September 6th at 8 a.m. here at the 15th Street Campus. Be ready to work. We'll have a brief time of of worship in the the worship center. We'll here to to, uh, get instructions, to receive our weekly offering, and then to receive some encouragement and and a prayer blessing. And then we're going to go out to our assigned sites. We'll serve for about three hours, and then we'll be back here for a picnic lunch around noon. It's going to be a blast. I mean, imagine over a thousand people going out at one time and loving our community like this. That's exactly what next weekend is all about. You won't want to miss it. Now, in order to participate, this is very important, you need to register soon. Registration closes this Monday. It closes. So you can't wait until the last minute later in the week. Oh, yeah, we forgot to do it. You can't wait till the last minute. You need to register today because we have to, we want to put people in teams and assign people. So registration is all online. Go to cccgreely.org, click on the ShareFest banner. You can register individually. You can register it as a group of people, your family, small group, maybe a sports team you're on or whatever. And feel free to invite people that aren't a part of this church. Man, we'd more the merrier, right? Um, so this year, you actually get to pick the project that you want to be involved in. And once that project fills up with enough people, it will be, it will be removed from the website. Um, now, if you're concerned about not being able to do physical labor or being out in the sun, totally understand that. There are lots of other ways you can be involved. We have, we have several behind-the-scenes opportunities. You can help with the picnic lunch. You can help deliver water. All sorts of things you can do. Everyone can be involved. And that really is the power of this event. It's that we're doing it together as a church. Even if you serve in the community in other ways during the year, I totally understand that, which is awesome. Even if you do that during the year, we want you to be a part of this. Let, let's do this together. Let, let's worship God in this way together. If you're new to Christ's community, this is a fantastic way to meet people and, and, and to get better connected. So let's make next weekend an awesome weekend for Jesus in this community. Amen? Amen. All right. So by the way, I'm super excited about the new teaching series we're starting the week after ShareFest. It's called Life Inspired. We're going to talk about very practically about how we can experience an inspired, abundant life. So I can't wait for that. <clears throat> okay, so for years, our family has had this, air, this ongoing area of tension, this ongoing area of disagreement that has surfaced at various times over the years. At the center of this tension is an item known as the 
dishwasher. You see, for years, I have been a very diligent rinser. I believe that, that before any item goes into the dishwasher, it needs to be thoroughly rinsed, okay? So much so that Raylene has told me, we don't really even need a dishwasher because I'm cleaning the dishes so well. But, but my deal is there is no way a dishwasher can really, can adequately clean all that food glump, you know, that has been dried on to these plates and forks and all that. They, thus, they need to be rinsed thoroughly. So a few weeks ago, I was reading the Wall Street Journal of all places here, and they had an entire article on this. Apparently, this is splitting families everywhere, the rinsers and the non-rinsers. The, the 40, they said 40% of families have disagreements about this. Now, in this article, they actually, they, they reveal actual studies that have, that, that have been done showing that it is better if you don't rinse the dishes, that somehow the soap stuff can attach itself better to plates that are dirty. So suddenly, my deeply, deeply held conviction, my decades-long and deeply held conviction was under attack. I mean, it was hard for me to read this. It was even harder for me to share this with my family because I had argued my case for so long. I mean, even though this really was good news, right? Less work, less effort. It was really hard for me to accept. Change is hard. It is hard when deeply held patterns and beliefs are suddenly changed. Well, we've been in a, a summer-long series where we're finishing uh, today, but we, we've been walking through the first few chapters of the book of Luke, and we're seeking to discover or rediscover who Jesus really is. And so today we find ourselves at the end of Luke chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6. In this passage, we see Jesus doing the very thing I talked about a moment ago. He is challenging some deeply held beliefs and assumptions embraced by the religious leaders of the day. You see, the religious Religious leaders in that day were rinsers. They were rinsers. They believed that you had to work hard to clean up your life. That ultimately, it was about your effort, your ability to get clean, your ability to live a moral life. So for decades, even centuries, this was the accepted belief. And then Jesus came on the scene with this amazing news called the gospel. And the primary message of the gospel is you don't have to rinse. There, there is a God who has taken it upon himself to cleanse you. He has done all the work on the cross. Jesus is like our ultimate dishwasher. We just need to place ourselves in him and let him cleanse us. I mean, this, this was incredible news, and yet the rinsers didn't really like it very much. In fact, in Luke chapter 5 and 6, there are three specific incidents where this disagreement comes up between Jesus and the religious rinsers. And in each one, we see a huge difference between living as a rinser or living in the gospel. The first occurs beginning in verse 33 of Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> Let me read this. They, the religious leaders, said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. See, notice the criticism. These religious leaders are comparing Jesus' disciples 
with the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees. And the disciples of John the Baptist and the the Pharisees often fasted and prayed. They were very disciplined in these certain spiritual practices, while Jesus' disciples weren't. They didn't didn't engage in intense times of fasting and prayer. And the natural conclusion of these critics was that Jesus' disciples weren't very spiritual. I mean, this, this is a typical characteristic of religious rinsers. See, for rinsers, spiritual maturity is primarily measured in terms of rituals, in terms of religious practices. Did you read your Bible? Did you pray? Have you fasted? Et cetera, et cetera. Now, 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 all these are valuable things, as we will see. They are valuable things. They can help us grow spiritually. But what often gets lost in this assessment is a much deeper issue, a far more critical issue. And that is motivation. Why are we doing these rituals? Why are we participating in these spiritual practices? That's the issue Jesus goes after in his response to this criticism. He doesn't say, you're right, my disciples need to start fasting. Hey, come on, guys, let's start fasting next week. He doesn't do that. No, Jesus goes after the heart, the motivation. Look at his response, verse 34. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. See, at a wedding, no one is thinking about fasting. Why? Because the bride and groom are there. (laughs) It's a time of food and feasting. It's a time of, of, of celebration of relationship. So in this analogy, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom and his disciples are the friends of the bridegroom. Because Jesus is there, there is no need for fasting. Jesus' point is not that the discipline of fasting is unimportant. His point is that these kinds of spiritual practices are ultimately about him experiencing and deepening in our relationship with him. And the Pharisees didn't get that. See, for them, fasting was a way to impress God and a way to impress other people. Fasting was sort of a a badge of honor. It was a mark of spiritual maturity. It was a way to prove, to prove, to prove how worthy they were of God's favor, how worthy they were of God's acceptance and love. But then Jesus showed up and his mission was to save us, to become our way to establish a relationship with God. A relationship that's not based on rituals, but based on relationship. So when we are in Christ, we don't have to do these rituals in order to somehow establish our standing with God. We don't have to rinse our dishes. Jesus is our dishwasher. Jesus' point is that his kingdom is ultimately about enjoying and cultivating a relationship with him rather than using these religious rituals as a means of trying to get God to love us more. And that's a huge difference. So does that mean that we no longer need to fast and pray and and do these things? No, no, no. Doesn't mean that we don't, don't do those things. Jesus himself acknowledges that after when he's gone, his disciples are going to fast. He says that here. But their motivation will be completely different than the motivation of the Pharisees. Completely different motivation. See, that's the key. Are, are we doing these things to impress God 
and earn his acceptance? Or are we doing these things to know him better, to enjoy him, to grow in our love and our trust of him? It's all about relationship. If our practices of spiritual disciplines, whatever they happen to be, if our practices of spiritual disciplines don't point us to a deeper experience of Jesus, we are totally missing the point. They don't point us into a deeper experience and relationship with Jesus. We're totally missing the point. For years, I did not understand this. I was a Christian. I was growing. I was following Christ. All those things. I didn't understand this. When I was in college, I was extremely disciplined in my prayer times. Um, had a, just you know a section of prayer between classes. I would go into the chapel there on campus and and it, almost every day. And I fasted every Thursday. I memorized scripture. All of those things are are powerful and they're really good. They really are. Uh, but the problem was my motivation. See, the problem was I didn't really believe God loved me. I didn't really believe. God loved me. And so I was doing all these things to earn brownie points with God. I was doing these things to get God to maybe smile at me and and, and maybe think I was something special. So my motivation, my motivation for doing these things was was completely wrong. It wasn't that the activity was wrong. My motivation was wrong. I was basically functioning like a Pharisee. Right? Trying to earn my way to God rather than living like a follower of Jesus who was already in that relationship. I don't have to earn it. I'm already in this relationship. I can just enjoy it. So prayer and fasting and church attendance and Bible study, all these things are are great ways to, to deepen our intimacy with Jesus, to deepen our trust in him. But they never, they are never to serve as a means whereby we can earn our acceptance before God. Never. They are never to serve in that way. We, we already have that in Christ. We already have this relationship in Christ where he is for us. He's with us. He loves us. Okay, so the first difference between living as a rinser and living in the gospel is the difference between ritual and relationship. Rinsers are focused on rituals. People of the gospel are focused on relationship with Jesus. There's a huge difference in heart and motivation. Okay, a, sef- a second difference <clears throat> between living as a rinser and living in the gospel is shown in Luke 6, verses 1 through 5. So let me, let me read this portion here. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered into the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so here we see another controversy and that occurs between the religious leaders and Jesus. And this one has to do with the Sabbath. The Sabbath 
is an important is, and as I said, is, not as was, the Sabbath is an important life rhythm that God has established for his people. It involves setting aside one day out of seven to not work at all, <laughs> not work, but instead to rest and honor the Lord. So important was this rhythm that God actually put it in the Ten Commandments. He actually put it in the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy. God wants one day in seven to be a day of rest, a day set apart for him. So why is this a big deal to God? Why is it such a big deal to God? Well, one thing, it's a regular reminder to us, and this is so important. It's a regular reminder to us that our lives, our identity is about way more than our work. It's about way more than how many widgets we can produce or how many emails we can respond to, or how much our business can grow. Our life, our identity, is about way more than what we can produce. Our lives are ultimately about Him, about, about our relationship with Him. And so that's one reason God said, one day in seven, you need to remember this. I want you to remember this. Because otherwise, you'll just think that your value as a person is dependent upon how many things you can produce, how much you can do. So that's one reason I believe God established the Sabbath. It's to remind us this is at the core of our being, not how much we can do. But not only that, the Sabbath principle is a blessing to us. It is a blessing to us. God commands, think about this. He commands us to set aside one day a week to rest to enjoy him, to slow down, to stop doing, you know, to, to just reflect upon his goodness to us and his blessings to us. And we, we all need that, right? We don't practice this very well, but boy, do we need it. We need it. Okay, so the heart, the heart of this Sabbath principle, the purpose of a Sabbath rhythm was for our benefit. It was for our good. The problem was, over time, the actual practice of the Sabbath became more burdensome. How did that happen? Well, these religious leaders, what happened was these religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, they were so intent upon helping people apply the Sabbath principle. You know, a lot of times you think, oh, the Pharisees were such evil people. No, no, no. They, they, they really wanted to apply God's law. They really wanted to follow God's law. They were so intent upon applying and following God's law and helping people do that, that they started to come up with. They developed this very long list of, of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. This very long list of what was, what was considered work on the Sabbath. Again, they're, 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 they were trying to help people apply this principle. But the problem was... The result of this. So they, they actually determined how far you could walk on the Sabbath. It was a certain length. If you, if you went beyond that, that was work. Um, you, you couldn't pull out a gray hair from your head. If you saw a gray hair, you couldn't pull out a gray hair because that was work. They created all these rules. They created all these extra regulations for the Sabbath. Again, trying to get people to rest, but it actually became a burden. And so suddenly the focus shifted. Instead of the Sabbath being a day to enjoy, it became a day filled with restrictions. Don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that, and you can't do that. Rather than a day to nourish the soul, it became a burden to the soul. 
That, that, that's, that's what legalism and religion will do. They will squeeze the life out of our relationship with God, which is exactly what, was hap- what is happening in this episode. See, Jesus and his disciples were walking along through some grain fields on a Sabbath day, and they were hungry. So they took some of the heads of grain, they rubbed it in their hands, and they began to eat the kernels. Now, this was not considered stealing. It was not considered sk- stealing because the law... God's law allowed for this kind of personal gleaning. But from the Pharisees' perspective, the disciples were doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. They were doing something unlawful. They, they were, they, they, and it wasn't because they were gleaning. The, the, what was, well, the problem was that they were technically, they were harvesting. And they considered harvesting work. And that's what, that's what they were concerned about. So the Pharisees saw this happening and they jumped on Jesus about this restriction that wasn't being honored. Now, we need to realize that this is exactly what rinsers do. This is exactly what rinsers do. Because rinsers, and I can, I can say that because I'm a recovering one, right? Because rinsers are so focused on cleaning up our own lives in order for God to love us, we end up projecting that onto other people. We can become very nitpicky. We can become very critical of people who aren't following our rules very well. Right? And the irony is, often, often these these rules we are so adamant about aren't even in the Bible. That's the irony. A lot of these rules aren't even in the Bible. For instance... I like to pray when I'm, when I'm driving around in the car. I like to pray. And, uh, and, and um, sometimes while driving, it's, it'll be my day off or an evening, and I'm wear, I wear a baseball cap. And, and I have this thing ingrained in me that God does not hear my prayers when I'm wearing a cap. I don't know where I got this, but, uh, you know, it's a society of respect. I totally understand that you take your cap off to the Pledge of Allegiance. I totally understand all that. But I have got ingrained in me this idea that if I'm wearing a hat, God does not hear my prayers. Is that anywhere in the Bible? No. But I feel it. Oh, man, I feel it. And... I have a tendency to project this onto others, questioning their maturity if we're in a prayer meeting and they don't remove their hat. Drinking alcohol is another one of these areas. The Bible clearly, clearly forbids getting drunk. Not arguable. Getting drunk, absolutely sin. It clearly forbids becoming addicted to alcohol. Absolutely. Losing control and letting the substance control. Totally forbids those things. But the Bible does not forbid drinking alcohol. Jesus drank wine. I mean, his first miracle involved creating incredible wine so that a party didn't end in disaster. A wedding party didn't end in disaster. Now, it is, it is totally cool to have a personal conviction about not drinking, choosing to abstain. That is totally cool. This was my personal practice for years, and I had legitimate reasons, I think, to, to have that. But, but more recently, I've actually relaxed that in my own life and realized it's okay for me to have a margarita every once in a while. I've never been drunk. Alcohol is not controlling my life, but I may enjoy a drink occasionally. See, on issues like this, the gospel urges freedom, It urges freedom. We can be free in Christ. Not free to sin, 
but free to live without these extra religious restrictions that get placed on us and that we place on ourselves, depending on our upbringing or whatever, all these things that we can place on ourselves. See, that's ultimately where Jesus goes in this passage. He cites an example from the life of David, where David and his companions were hungry. And, and when they were hungry, they went into the temple, they took some sacred or went into the, to the priest's area there, and they took sacred bread from the house of God and they ate it. And, and, and Jesus uses that example, and then he says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. His point is that Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath is not ultimately about restrictions. It never was about restrictions. It's about freedom. It's about enjoying freedom in him. So to summarize the second point, rinsers focus on restrictions. Gospel people live in Freedom. They live in freedom. Well, there's one more controversy that occurs in this passage. And again, it highlights a difference between living as a rinser and living in the gospel. Luke 6, beginning in verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Okay, can you picture this scene? Synagogue, Jesus is teaching. The religious leaders are there. and They're whispering back and forth, right? They're, they're there. They're drawn. They're, 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 they're there in force. I mean, there are a number of them there. And they're looking for a reason to accuse him, right? To tear him down, to, to discredit him. They can't go after his teaching because his teaching is amazing. Um, the people love his teaching. We've already seen that in the book of Luke over and over again. But they couldn't go after his teaching, but they could go after a miracle if the miracle occurred on the Sabbath. See, the, the Pharisees believed that as, that, that, that as long as a person's life was in danger, it was okay to heal on the Sabbath. Someone's life was in danger. But in this case, this man's life was not in danger. He just had a shriveled hand, right? Um, so his life wasn't in, in danger. So for them, this was actually an opportunity to accuse this new rabbi who was stirring things up, you know, and getting more and more attention. This was an opportunity for them to accuse him. So Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And not surprisingly, you could see it in what we just read. He deliberately forces the issue. He is deliberately forcing this. <laughs> he calls this man forward. He doesn't do this privately. Hey, let me, let me just meet you after the meeting. He calls this man forward. And he asks this amazingly insightful question that immediately delineates rinsers from gospel people. Here's the question. Verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, to them, not to the man, he said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? This is brilliant. This is brilliant. Jesus, with laser-like precision, focuses on the fundamental issue here. Love. 
love, doing good for someone else. He is saying to these religious rinsers, is it really wrong to do good on the Sabbath? Is it really wrong to help someone, to bring life to someone, to heal someone? And and then Jesus answers the question in in a dramatic way. Verse 10, he looked around at them all. So he looks at them all after asking this question. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. See, that's the answer to his question. Any Sabbath perspective that doesn't allow love to be demonstrated is completely missing the heart of God. So what we see here is that rinsers focus on rule-keeping. Gospel people focus on love. Loving others, doing good, bringing life. Now, this distinction is huge. It is huge. In fact, in verse 9, Jesus alludes to the fact that to not heal this man's hand would be to do evil. To not respond in a loving way would be to actually do evil. And and, and this this is where religious rule-keeping tends to lead. This is very important that we understand this. This is where religious rule-keeping tends to lead. When love is not the driving force, these added-on religious rules can easily become a seedbed for evil, for pride, for a feeling of superiority, for hatred, and eventually even violence. Even violence. Let me give two illustrations of this. One is right here in this passage. Look at the Pharisees' response to this healing. This man's hand was, was shriveled, and now it is fully functioning, which is awesome. How cool is that, right? Verse 11. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. They were furious. They were in a rage. How dare he break the Sabbath in this way? They were so focused on their rules that they completely missed love. And then in their anger, they began talking about what they might do to Jesus. And we all know where that rage led to a bloody cross. That's how, that's where their rage led to violence, to injustice, to a bloody cross, to murder a man. So that's one illustration, religious rule-keeping, where it can lead. Second illustration, a modern-day example, is ISIS. I mean, their fear-based religious system fuels hatred and violence against those who disagree with them, especially Christians. So they torture, rape, kidnap children, chop off people's heads, all in the name of God. When fear and control are the driving issues, as is often the case in religious type environments like we're talking about here, when fear and control are the driving issues and others don't agree or cooperate, violence becomes a natural response to that. 
Now, I just read in the Greeley Tribune um, last week an editorial by a local guy. I've not met him, but a local person, local guy who wrote a book, who's written a book called Alpha God. And the gist of this article, and, and it's an opinion I think shared by, by some um, in our culture, um, is that religion is actually the cause of violence. That religion is the cause of violence. That, that humans have made up the concept of God. This angry, vengeful God of wrath who is trying to control us and all that. And, and, that, that, and the violence, what argue, these people argue, is that the violence that we see throughout history and today, that violence is in large part due to this conception of God. And his point in the, in the, in the article is that if we, and, and I assume in the book, his point is that if we just grew up and got rid of this need for God, we'd be better off. That religion is the cause of violence. Now, there, there are a number of disagreements that, that I would have with this thesis, but the most important and relevant to our discussion is this. This is so important. What he does is he mistakenly lumps together religion and the gospel. He just throws them in. He lumps them in together and draws his conclusions from that, which historically speaking is not accurate. See, I totally agree that religion has often resulted in violence and control. The Crusades, both the Muslim side and the Christian side, ISIS, the Inquisitions. I mean, you go on and on, right, of examples of that. But, re- but, but that's religion. But the gospel, the gospel is not rooted in fear and control and rule-keeping. And because of that, the fruit of the gospel is not violence, but love. I mean, Jesus rejected religion And he embodied the gospel. He lived a life of love. And he urged his followers to love one another and then to love our enemies and to care for the hurting, to care for the needy. And they did. I mean, in in a dramatic way. I mean, in the fourth century, a plague hit and a a famine-ridden Caesarea. And everyone was fleeing. The plague going on. People were dying. It was contagious. Everyone was fleeing the town except the Christians. They stayed, and they took care of the dying, and they brought food to those who had got the disease and who were frightened. They cared for the sick. Historians will say that was one of the primary reasons that Christianity (laughs) began to be a significant influence in in the Roman world, in the empire then, was their compassion I mean, look at the number of hospitals around the world started by gospel people. Look at, look at the amount of generosity, the amount of compassion that have been demonstrated through Christian agencies and churches and Christ followers all around the world. The, the movement that Jesus started has resulted in an unprecedented amount of love demonstrated over centuries. When people get the gospel, love is the natural response just is. And I'm, I'm like, don't lump me into that religious category. Don't lump Christianity into that religious category or God, the gospel into that religious category because it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. When, when people get the gospel, love is the natural response, doing good, caring for the needs of others. Now, do we as Christ followers love perfectly? Obviously, no, we don't. And any of us can pick out evidences in history where some cult or some, you know, weird thing can pick out examples like that. Anyone can do that. 
But that doesn't change the fact that love is the clear call of Jesus on our lives. To love others is the natural response of his love being poured out upon us through the cross. So what a, what a huge contrast we have here between these, these two ways of living. Religious rinsers are focused on rituals, restrictions, rule keeping. Gospel people are focused on relationship with Jesus, freedom, and love. Huge contrast. Night and day difference. In fact, Jesus uses a powerful analogy in the middle of this passage to describe this difference. Look at what he says, verse 37 of Luke 5. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. You see, in that culture, wine was often stored in a container made out of animal skin. And initially, the animal skin would be, the hide would be soft and flexible. And so when they poured new wine in, that, that it would be flexible so that it, as, the, as the wine aged, the skin would be able to expand. But over time, that hide would naturally become dried out and it would become less pliable. It still held the old wine, that was initially put into it. But if you were to pour new wine into an old, dried, you know, brittle um, wine skin, it would burst. Jesus is saying that he is the new wine. He is not interested in just tweaking the old religious system, you know, tweaking a few things about rule keeping and all that stuff and guilt and fear and all that. He's not just talking about tweaking that. He is bringing a radical change, a radical change, a gospel, a gospel that, that brings relationship with him and freedom and joy and love and all those things. But here's the deal. We have to, his point here is we have to choose which path we're going to be on. We have to choose which path we want to be on. Now, we might say that's a really easy decision. I mean, of those contrasts, who would want, you know, the, the, the one? I, I definitely want the new wine, all that stuff. We may say that, but Jesus makes a startling statement in verse 39. Look at this. I didn't understand this at first, and then I had to kind of think through this and study this. I, I, I think I understand what Jesus is saying here, but look at the statement he says, verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say, the old is better. I mean, do you, do you see what he's saying? Some people, many people, will prefer the old way. Religious rule-keeping is appealing to some, to many people, actually. Why, why is that? Because we all want to be able to fix ourselves. We do. We still want to believe that we can earn our way. I'm a pretty good person. I can earn my way. If I just do these things, and look at how many I've done, Lord. Oh, look at these things. If I just do these things, and I'm such a neat person anyway, God certainly loves me and accepts me because of that. Just give me a list. I have people tell me, give me a list. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> give me a list. There is a part of us, let's be honest, there's a part of us that loves religion. Just give me a list. A list of things I can do to prove that I'm worthy of God's acceptance. We, we love to have a list of behaviors that make us acceptable. And, and this is why, this is exactly why I still want to rinse the dishes today. Even though I know the dishwasher will do it. It's not necessarily easy to embrace this gospel pathway because it means letting go 
of our self-sufficiency, of our self-righteousness, of our own attempts at earning our way. And instead, it means admitting we need Jesus, the divine dishwasher. We need him to do the hard work. He is an amazing savior, and he can do incredible things when we stop trying to rinse ourselves and we allow him to do his work. So which path are you choosing? Are you still trying to be a rinser? Or are you living in the joy, the freedom, and the love of the gospel? Which path are you choosing? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now and to speak and to move in our hearts. We've heard this message, we're processing, and now we pray you would apply it to our each one of us in our situation here. So let me just ask, and you can just keep your head bowed, the quiet of your heart, but let me ask, are you, which path are you choosing? Are, are you trying to be a rinser? Are you trying to clean up your life so that God will accept you? You're trying to do these things, thinking, hey, if I get to the end and my good deeds outweigh my bad, then God will let me in because I've really tried hard and, you know, I'm a good person. You're trying to be a rinser because you're basing your relationship with God, whether you're going to heaven or whatever, you're basing that on your effort, on how clean you can make yourself. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Rinsing falls short because none of us can rinse ourselves that well. We need a savior. So there are some of you here, I want to give a couple invitations. One, there are some of you here, you have always been a rinser and Jesus wants you to lay that aside and to place your trust in him. To stop trying to clean up your life in order to get his acceptance and earn his favor. He wants you to stop depending on your effort and start trusting in his work on the cross. And I believe there are some of you here, this is the first time you've understood this. All of a sudden, it's making sense to you. And you know you need this. You want a relationship with Jesus. This kind of a relationship. It's based on his work, not yours. So if that's you, let me lead you in a prayer right now where you can open your heart and receive his forgiveness and his life. So pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy and I am not. And I confess that I'm a rinser. I am trying to clean up my life, to do these things, to try to earn my way to God, to earn your acceptance. And I realize now that it's never going to be enough. Because you're holy, and I fall short of that. So I believe, Jesus, that you came to earth and you died on the cross to pay for all of my sin. You paid for all, you paid the penalty I should have paid. And I choose right now to place my trust in you. I bring you my faults and my fears and my sins and my doubts and my failures. I bring it all to you and I place it on your shoulders. And I let go. 
and I receive your life. Forgive my sins. Wash me clean through the power of your blood. Past, present, and future. Wash me clean. And come live in me through the presence and power of your spirit. Change me from the inside out. Transform me. So Lord, I want to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in this incredible relationship with you. And if that's you, if you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to check out the Alpha course coming up the 16th. You heard about it earlier in in the announcements. Great way to begin this journey. Another invitation here, the rest of us, recovering rinsers, right? How many of us here are rinsers? We We know Jesus, we've placed our trust in him, but we fall into this trap living as if our relationship with him depends upon us, our activity, our good behavior, and often it leads to a driven, critical, joyless life, looking down on other people who don't follow the rules nearly as well as we do. Oh God, would you set us free from that through the power of the gospel? You would set us free from being people who measure spirituality based on rituals. You would would set us free from being people who are focused on restrictions and judging others and looking down on others who don't follow our restrictions like we do. Would you set us free to be people of love? So I'm asking, Lord, we are asking you to release into our lives the joy of relationship with you, the joy of freedom in you. And the love that you bring. I pray that you would, we we confess our, um, sometimes our tendency towards being religious, being rinsers. And we want to rest in the fullness of the salvation that is ours. It is already ours. We are cleansed. We are loved. And you invite us to be transformed by that incredible gospel. So we pray for that, Lord. I pray in each one of us an unleashing, a growth in, an expanding of the gospel in our lives. And that great freedom and joy and love would be the result of that. Thank you, Jesus, for being our divine dishwasher. You've done all the work. You have done all the work. And we can now rest in all that you've done for us. And we do that. We celebrate what you've done for us. So why don't we stand? Whatever campus you're at here, please stand. The worship team is going to lead us in in a time of response. And we just want to be set free now to worship this amazing Savior who loves us so much. So we love you, Jesus. Set us free to worship you and celebrate the gospel at work in our lives. Thank you, Lord.